Hi, and welcome to the Decoding Life podcast with Catherine and Sophie. For our last conversation of this series, we have Professor Anna Middleton. Anna is Head of Society and Ethics Research at the Sanger Institute and has spent her career researching the impact of genomics on society. We got to see genomics research from a completely different angle from this conversation and we really hope you enjoy it as much as we did. for joining us Anna um, we really appreciate it we're very excited to get into your role sort of as the last episode of the season um, so I guess if you'd start by just talking about what interested you in science and when you realized you could move into genetic counseling and what that was it's quite a big question yeah yeah so I was always fascinated by family um, and you know by that I kind of understood genetics and inheritance and ancestry and heritage so um, that naturally took me on a path to doing a genetics degree as my first degree but when I was doing that first degree in Newcastle whilst I really enjoyed the science um, it it kind of wasn't where my passion was my passion was dealing with people um, and understanding the impact of genetics on people and particularly on family and uh, you know the exploration of inherited conditions so um, I, when I was in the final year of my genetics degree, um, this is when the first master's course in genetic counselling was in its second year. Um, and I read about it, heard about it, you know, on the kind of the genetics grapevine, there was lots of buzz about it. And this was based in Manchester and I applied. I think there were about 2000 applicants for one place um, and there were five in my year, I think um four in our year uh so it was a very very small course um really really competitive to get on but I knew it was where I wanted to go and be in terms of my future career because genetic counseling is all about people it's all about the impact of genetics it's all about how everyday people make sense of inheritance what it means for their lives their family their relatives and and it also recognizes that genetics and emotion go hand in hand you know um, when things run through families or there's a risk of disease or there's a new condition that pops up that's got an inherited component to it um, this can bring together all sorts of emotion about risk and stigma and guilt and blame and um, you know difficulty really and that's that's what really interested me and so uh, doing genetic counseling masters was what set me up really for a career in working with people and the impact of genetics on people. So you mentioned that the course that you got onto was really um, competitive mm. of, has that changed drastically as everything's become more accessible through the NHS? No it's still just as competitive in fact it's probably more competitive um, I mean this is one of the areas that's not kept to pace with the science and that's uh, in terms of the delivery of courses that um, service <laughs> the genetics professional with genetic counsellors. I mean genetic counsellors do um, a two-year master's um, and that qualifies them to um, basically you know know an awful lot about clinical genetics and the and the clinical signs of different conditions as well as the molecular genetics around the testing 
um, and the clinical science, um, but also all the counselling skills in terms of how to help people make sense of the information in meaningful ways for them, as well as um, really thinking through the ethical implications, because genetics and ethics go hand in hand and they always have done. That's one of the things that really drew me into this. Um, and on and, and a very basic level, it's, you know, within genetic counselling, it's about, you know, um, does this result belong to me or my family? Whose autonomy mm. is more important? Um, who, who, sh who should I share my information with in terms of close relatives, distant relatives? How do I get data to them? You know, given the emotional burden around all of that, it's very, very complicated. Um, so the, the course teaches you to do all of that. And um, now that genomics has gone mainstream, so it's now in every virtually every clinic across the NHS now, um, there's a need to upskill all sorts of health professionals mm -hmm. in the skills of genetic counselling. And there's just not enough courses around to do that. So there's a massive, massive demand. I was looking a bit at the history of sort of genetic testing. Um, and like the 1950s, we started with you have all your chromosomes mm. uh, and there's a certain number of chromosomes people are supposed to have and we could look at those. I guess, would you talk a bit about that? Would you talk about sort of the history of genetic testing and sort of where it was when you started this? The, the history of genetic counselling is very interesting. I mean, the profession was set up as the antidote to the eugenics movement. So eugenics was all about um, uh, purifying the race and selective breeding and stopping certain people from marrying each other on the misunderstanding that if they did that they would have certain um, children with certain conditions. I mean a lot of misunderstandings about inheritance in the eugenics movement that yeah. really did not play out in terms of the science but you know the eugenics movement was often um, government sponsored, state sponsored, um, very paternalistic uh, doctors deciding what was right for patients and genetic counseling was set up really as the opposition to that so this was about taking the choice um, away from government and putting it in the hands of people parents mm. individuals to make choices about um, you know what they wanted to do with the genetic inf information in the family so whether that was to choose to have children and if so to have testing pregnancy to make choices um, to end a pregnancy or continue with a pregnancy, depending on what fit their life. So the, the, the whole um, prenatal testing and control of one's self was very much supported by the genetic counselling profession. Yeah, and, and I guess originally, yes, the carrier type was one of the first um, forms of chromosomal testing, which was, you know, looking for additional chromosomes missing chromosome bits, bits deleted, swapped around, translocations, all of those sorts of things. Um, but separate from that testing, there was always the ability to look at family trees and work out mm. patterns of inheritance, you know, whether it was dominant or X-linked or recessive or whatever. You could see that from just what was playing out in the family. Yeah. But you could give a lot of information aside from the testing, you know, many, many years before the testing became um, a reality. And then... Yeah, I mean, as as the science has evolved and um, we understand much more about, you know, single gene Mendelian conditions versus polygenic conditions, the interaction with the environment, the whole, you know, testing repertoire has just expanded enormously and yeah. it just keeps evolving. It's it's um, 
a very, very interesting time, particularly with the launch of the new genomic medicine service in the NHS that happened in 2018 and also is happening elsewhere around the world. It's a very interesting time for um, families that are making choices about um, what to do with genetic information. So, um, so then to be a genetic counsellor, do you have to do a PhD or is that a choice you made that you wanted to take that step? So you don't have to do a PhD to, to be a genetic counsellor. You have to do the master's level, very specialist training to be a genetic counsellor. Um, there are some other routes in through nursing um, and other areas, but most people who are genetic counsellors have this um this very specialist masters. I decided that I wanted to do a PhD though, because um, if you want a, a career that progresses within the genetic counseling profession, part of our career structure is you know, that you would need a PhD. But also I felt um, that even though I absolutely adored working in the NHS and directly with patients, I felt that my calling really was to push the boundaries of the art of the possible with the, you know, the science behind genetic counselling and really you can only do that in a research setting um, because the clinical practice is so intense and so full-on um, it's very hard to combine an, an academic and clinical career particularly for genetic counsellors I mean many medics manage it um, they have more formalised career structures that enable that whereas genetic counsellors are often doing research in their spare time and there isn't mm. the infrastructure around them to support them so yeah I jumped with both feet out into academia um, so after I did my PhD in psychology well it's in psychology and genetics which is quite unusual to have the two disciplines together um, I then started leading research um, on um, all sorts of issues to do with diversity and access and the 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 different experience of people in relation to genetics so that's what my research career is now focused on. Would you mind just telling us what your PhD project was? My PhD project was, um, oh, I absolutely loved it, I was so passionate about it so when I um, finished my master's in genetic counselling and I was qualified to work clinically as a genetic counsellor um, I walked straight into a research project and the research project was um, we're going to discover the, the first gene for deafness. And this makes me laugh because now, of course, we know there are hundreds of different genes for deafness. Yeah, yeah. This is back in the mid 90s. <laughs> Let's discover the first gene for deafness. Um, and so my task was to go out into the community and collect families with recessive deafness. And that was all that was my remit. Just go and find families explain the genetics research, go and take blood from these families, um, bring it back to the lab and we'll do the testing. And so it seemed quite simple on, on paper and the scientists themselves were completely none the wiser as to what was going on in the, in the deaf community. But I, it soon hit me when I went out into the deaf community. Um, but actually there were so many families out there where there was many generations of deafness in the family um, where it was all recessive deafness. So it was, it was, you know, definitely inherited from one generation to the next, um, where people were really, really anti-genetics. I mean, absolutely terrified that we were going to find the deafness gene and thus wipe them out as a community. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to learn very, very quickly of a different perspective of genetics um, and a social model of dis disability. So where we might see 
with our very kind of um, altruistic hat on saying, oh, we're doing good thing for society by trying to uncover what's causing deafness so that we can offer treatments and cures in the future. This is a community that really did not want treatments and cures. And this is a community where profound congenital um, sensory deafness was there from birth and nobody you know in the family would speak or hear at all and they were using sign language as their first language so I decided to spend my PhD years actually studying those attitudes and looking at attitudes towards testing in pregnancy for deafness um, and um, discovered that there were quite a few families who would choose to have deaf children and would actually um, would consider ending a pregnancy if it was hearing because mm. they did not really understand or want to consider having a hearing child because how would that child learn how to speak um and so the result of the scientific research that i was collaborating collaborating in was that we did find the first connexin 26 deafness gene as part of that study but what was much more rich for me was doing this incredible piece of work on public attitudes. And that's what really set me off in this career of looking at different ways of looking at genetic disease. Yeah, that's interesting. It kind of highlights a level of naivety, I think, to the history. Um, and like, as we started with talking about eugenics being, um, genetic counseling being sort of the antidote to eugenics. Um, and just going in and saying, okay, we're going to find this gene and help a lot of people is quite naive. Yeah, I think we, today we would call it naive and it seems so obvious, isesn't it, today? Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think part of what that original project did, so this is like the mid-90s, is really throw out for the first time a different way of looking at genetic disease. And so it was very, very new and novel then. Um, and it really divided clinical genetics particularly so there was those who were very for you know patient choice and autonomy and going with the patient journey which is you know obviously we all supported but there were others who felt no this is the point where we draw the line you know mm. we we test for serious life-threatening conditions um deafness is not one of those so we should not be offering prenatal testing particularly for deafness or hearingness you know either way because it's not a serious life-threatening condition um, and then it got to the sort of individual laboratories making decisions on whether they would test or not test. Where has that gone then? Is there more of a supportive body and a governing body surrounding genetic testing now than there was then? Yeah, one of the key sort of changes that's happened in the last couple of years within clinical genetic services is the um, development of the national test directory. So this is like one single directory that makes it clear what testing is available and which laboratories do it and there's a standardization and consistency in the testing so historically i mean even relatively recently if you had one family and some of them were seen in aberdeen and some of them were seen in southampton they might get a slightly different test and they also might get a slightly different interpretation of the test as well mm. so the um, national test directory is standardizing that so that that sort of takes away some of this um doubt really or choice about you know going to one lab and getting something slightly different from another lab mm -hmm. interesting do you think there's anything similar today that's might in the future be called very naive um but we have no idea today that's a bit of a difficult question <laughs> that's a great question um 
I don't know about naive. Well, probably we have to sort of look back on it, don't we, and, and then call it naive. Um, I do think we, scientists particularly, and I feel I can say this as one, and also working on the Sanger Institute amongst incredible scientists, is I do feel that we are in our very elite bubble and we mix amongst our crowd having the same kind of conversations and having a sort of confirmation bias that we see the world in the, in the same way. And it's always such an eye opener for me um, when I step out and into a local community group. So if I was like talking to the Women's Guild of Hartford, say, for example, or a housing estate residents association, which which I have done. Um, or only a few weeks ago, I was listening into some focus groups with different ethnic minority groups. Um, it's always such an eye opener to hear views about genetics from people completely out of our world. And they're always what you don't imagine. Um, so uh, on the focus groups a few weeks ago, people were saying things like, oh, I don't like science. Science has never done anything for me. I won't understand it. Um, I, I don't get it. Um, people scientists don't do anything for me and you think well <laughs> what about covid and the pandemic yeah. but you know on the ground there's that such a disconnection between what we think we're doing for the good of humanity and what they're experiencing hmm. so different so detached so disconnected um and a recent um, study from the British Science Association said that probably around 75% of the public either don't really care about science or will actively disengage if they hear anything about science. Hmm. Actively turn to look the other way. So, you know, that's very different from our world. And we think people are up to speed and they're on board and they understand our good intentions and they see that we're honourable and we're trying to do a good thing, but they really don't. So we, so much, we need to be so much better at understanding that and connecting and building bridges um, and, and feeling and believing and doing the service of society. And that, only, you know, that can only happen if we connect more. You, so I guess when you first started, you had a lot of people coming in that had genetic testing sort of given to them. But now we have a lot more what's called direct to consumer testing. Mm. Um, what do you think? How do you think that's changed? I guess, genetic counselling and maybe the role of medical providers in genetic counselling and, do, yeah. Well, so direct-to-consumer testing um, cuts out the genetic counsellor very deliberately because it's direct-to-consumer. And, uh, you know, when the, with the launch of all these big companies, um, this was heralded as a really positive thing. You know, you cut out the middleman, middlewoman, um, go directly to the, to the customer, and they can make autonomous decisions about what they want to be tested for. Fantastic. I mean, that's, that really does sound great. Um, and I'm all for that. I'm all for people be, being able to make decisions for themselves. However, we do know with directed consumer testing that they haven't exactly played a really ethical game. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the, sort of over time, they've realised that there's so much uh picking up of the pieces needed to be done post-test um, particularly if you have a bad news result in relation to a serious a serious condition or you're giving a given a very high absolute risk of developing a condition um, because i mean companies like 23andme 
don't have a genetic counselling service as part of the package and they're really naughty as well so particularly for the British site um, they'll say if you've had any worries about anything that we've told you um, go and find your local genetic counsellor and then they give you a hyperlink to the British Society of Genetics in Medicine and that you can't get a genetic counsellor through that site you know, that's that's our professional body that represents us and sorts that's out. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, um, so they they haven't done their homework. They're misleading their customers, and they're also expecting someone else to pick up the pieces. Um, mm. And you know, we know that there's, some, there's something very different about um, you know knowing that you're predisposed to you know dry earwax versus have a predisposition to inherited breast and ovarian cancer you know they lump it all together in one yeah. you know series of testing so I do think that they have you know a long way to go in bringing back support um and also because quite frankly they're you know expecting places like the NHS to pick up the pieces they should be playing their part in supporting genetic counselor training programs and you know we, we've only got 7,000 genetic counselors worldwide you know, imagine you can imagine 23 and me just employing all of them. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. <laughs> so um, there, there's quite a big job to really support the profession and, and increase the numbers. So you touched a little bit on your current role. Can you kind of describe what your actual role at Sanger is just now? Yes. Yeah, so I am the lead for ethics and society research. So um the core of the GRL mission and objectives for the campus is to, um, you know, make sure that the research that goes on on campus has impact and benefit for society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do we know it has impact and benefit for society unless we're asking society? So that's yeah. what my group does. We ask various different public audiences um around the world and our most recent research we've done with 37,000 people in 22 countries gathered data gathered in 15 languages what they you know asking them what they understand by genomic research and data sharing um, and what they want from that and what, what do they trust in, in that process um, and it turns out they don't know anything about it they don't understand it they don't trust it um, and we don't have their support so that's kind of helpful to know <laughs> so that we can figure out, okay, that's actually a bit of a problem. So our communications and engagement strategies that we currently have are not reaching, you know, quite large sections of the public. So what are we going to do about that? Because we need them on board. We need them to be trusting us and um, understanding what we're doing and why it's important. And um so we need to be thinking of new ways to be communicating with them and so that's what my research is all about is how do we um this is where my genetic counseling experience comes in is what's the evidence base behind how you communicate about this in meaningful ways mm-hmm. so that you don't alarm people and you bring them on the journey with you that goes back a lot to our most our last episode was with somebody in public engagement in science communications um and we talked up a lot about just sort of the role scientists can play in communications and public engagement and how we're so lacking in that and it's interesting to hear you say that because I think it's very true yeah Yeah. do you do any work with public engagement so we're we're part of the same group um I'd also say 
that the public engagement strategy is slightly different from where my group are at. So um, with, with public engagement and communications, um, you have to, you know, you bring your science audience to your public audience and the scientists talk about their science in meaningful ways. Now, that's great if your public audience has voted with their feet to be there. So they've made an active mm-hmm. choice to engage. They're, they're, they're listening. You know, and that's step one, that they, they've overcome whatever barriers they have. They're open minded. They're there. They're present. And that's pushing on an open door. And that's but that's actually the minority of the public. The vast majority of the public would switch off, choose to look away, wouldn't even come to the engagement event, um, would choose when they saw a newspaper heading about some of the incredible outputs from Sanger, would actively choose not to read those headlines. And that's the audience that I'm particularly interested in. Um, So, yeah, we need to do, of course, lots more of the existing public engagement, but that's only part of the picture. We need to broaden it and, and reach the actively disengaged. How do you even begin to go about doing that? <laughs> so what so what you do is you learn from experts that are already doing that in other areas. And so, of course, there are loads of incredible experts out there who have a lifetime of experience in reaching disconnected audiences with very simple messaging. So if we think about people in the film industry, um, advertising, marketing, PR, all of those storytellers, um, will help all of us to take on board subliminally messages about all sorts of different things. So just to give you an example, um, so Dove Shower Gel on YouTube has got a clip um, that's got 60 million views and it's a shower gel. And basically the human story in that advert is that um, the shower gel helps us accept our bodies more and, and make us feel good about ourselves. That's the human story. That's why it's been shared 60 million times. Mm-hmm. So if we can capture some of that human story and apply it to genetics, genetics is all about connection and human stories. Why have we not translated that better? You know, we really need to be getting on with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the work that I'm doing at the moment um, is looking at um, writing creative strategies um, to connect with filmmakers and storytellers to do this very basic translation. You know, if if line of duty, if police crime dramas can all help us engage with a bit of DNA testing, then let's apply similar kind of methods, but to our stories, you know, stories from campus. Have you um have you seen your role change at all with COVID? Um well, it's interesting. I've had my role change. Um I've been thinking and the whole group's been thinking more about, you know, what happens in an urgent um, situation in terms of policy that impacts on people. So in sense of our privacy um, and tracking and more recently, the requirement to have COVID vaccinations in order to travel or to work in a care home those sorts of things are starting to really push at our privacy and liberty. Um, And my approach has always been to be humble and gentle um, as opposed to legal and authoritative, I suppose is is the word. That's not to say that that's not needed, but I really dislike 
the idea that you can't work in a care home if you haven't had your uh, two vaccinations and the, and who is going to be policing that um, and you know there are many reasons very valid reasons allergies for one as to why some people can't be vaccinated um, and the care home industry is absolutely um, bereft it has not got enough staff so you start turning away potential staff without thinking about what could they actually do you know you shouldn't be going to a legal kind of setting we should be managing this and supporting and enabling as opposed to being very very strict and, and tight really don't like the way face coverings um have, have sort of turned into a um a sort of position of abuse you know if, if you can't wear a face covering because you're deaf for example and you yeah. want to be able to see people's faces and you um in it or if you're autistic or if you're anxious or whatever you should not be vilified for going into shop because you can't wear your face covering it's just become too regimented uh, uh, and strict and i don't like that so some of the ethics about liberty we're really thinking about really don't like the idea of vaccine passports um, and having um, your medical status incorporated into official records like your passports. I mean, this is, yeah, I yeah. really don't like track and trace tracking us if we're meant to be self-isolating and they're tracking where we're going. Don't like that. So there's lots of ethical, <laughs> lots yeah. of ethical we've been thinking through. I feel like we've really gone down an ethical hole <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think we could keep going down it for a long time but I was I just wanted to talk a bit about um about kind of the other side of um your role so I guess you lead a team mm. and at Sanger and in general the leadership team tends to be more male um so I wanted I, I wanted to know if you'd had any kind of mentors or anything beforehand before you became a leader that kind of stands out in your mind oh that's a really good question um I would love to say I would love to say that we're all equal and it doesn't matter if you're male or female and uh, sadly I can't say that um and I have particularly sought out female leaders um to support me um so i'm having my own mentoring with one of the senior uh leaders that welcome um to help and i would i would really recommend this for everybody's go and find somebody that you find inspirational and learn how they do that and, and emulate that um so i've always sought out amazing people that I just think are incredible and I've just said you know could we have a few sessions together because I'd just really like to learn learn your style I've also found it really helpful to connect with other women on campus um and you know we have the, of course there are old boys networks all over the place but we don't really have an old girl network or a similar kind of equivalent um, so when there are opportunities for women to meet, um, I will particularly foster that. So, for example, when we had a really big paper published in the um, American Journal of Human Genetics, which is a really big deal for social scientists to get a, such a big journal to publish our stuff, I sent a message around my female peers um, on campus 
um, and just said thank you for your support because this is a really big deal for me and I know that what's helped me get to where I am is the kind of unspoken not really celebrated um, informal support that other women leaders have given me um, and of course I, I also emailed my male colleagues as well and, and said thank you but there is something there is something special I think about seeking out um, a particular group um, and actually that group of women leaders has been really instrumental in opening doors and um, you know just being on their radar when they're in their own settings to think about opening opportunities for you so um, I would really recommend that and I'd love to be able to say it wasn't necessary or needed but sadly it is um, we touched on sort of mentorship in one of our previous episodes where Christine was talking about how everyone really should just like reach out to a mentor and it's something I'd never really thought of before like you should be actively seeking a mentor um, and people will often uh, be psyched on that really and it's interesting to hear you saying that you've actually like done that in your career I think it's really valuable advice yeah I've done that several times um you, you know when you when you meet or you see you see somebody presenting or you read something they've written and you think wow I, I feel that that's really quite magical and special how do you do that and it's very flattering I think when you approach somebody you say I really want to know how you do that how do you manage how do you manage having two children and you know working full-time and weekends and da, 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 caring for and you you know produce this incredible research I just really want to learn what's your magic mm -hmm. um it's it's really powerful and it helps us to stay grounded and also it can also lift us up a little bit in terms of our career I definitely think it's helped me um because the the ever <laughs> perpetual thing that I've faced because I have two kids and one of my children is autistic and so I have a caring responsibility as well and juggling all of that and um leading a team is really hard but it's all about focusing on what are my core objectives and delivering on those and not dealing with any of the extra stuff that might, might come with it and saying no to quite a lot of stuff uh, yeah. but figuring that out in in a in a kind way so that you are saying no to people but in a kind way and being really focused takes a lot of time and experience to, to feel like you're doing that effectively yeah um, i was gonna say thanks for not saying no to us <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh no you're welcome <laughs> i was reading something the other day that was like you have to have in mind like if you say no to something it's so you can say yes to something else I think for survival and again you know we were talking earlier about how do genetic counsellors manage the emotional burnout that they could get to you know you have to protect yourself um, I think if you're really clear on what your core objectives are and actually I have my my core objectives are written above my desk so I actually have them above me um about what I need to be achieving it's not it's not a to-do list it's actually what what are my core objectives in terms of what's um you know the mission statement for connecting science um and everything that I when I'm asked to do something I look at that and I think does it meet my core objectives or not and if it doesn't then I just politely say that's really kind of you to ask me but I'm focusing on my core objectives mm -hmm. um 
I think if you start doing that earlier on in your career, you'll you'll be very focused. <laughs> which is me, yeah, what are my core objectives? <laughs> I have to go think about that now. Do you think that you've come up against any challenges specifically because you've been a woman in your career? Yes, absolutely loads. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely loads of unconscious bias and um, inadvertent sexism. And I mean, I mean, only recently, you know, before the pandemic, I remember standing at the back of an auditorium at a conference and I was um, surrounded by men in suits, older men in suits. And I was the only woman on the back row standing up. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe three, 400 people in the audience and the chair said, any questions? I put my hand up first and then two sort of places down from me, a man puts his hand up second and the chair goes to the man. It's like, well, hang on. I was here first. Can I, I hope you said that. Yeah. Did yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. I, I was here first and the chair who was a man no 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 no. I want to hear from him because he is da 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 and he was you know there was this sort of hierarchy thing mm-hmm. and that's not really acceptable and, and and it was just an unconscious bias yeah that kind of thing all the time how do you find the confidence to call that out then well you you pick your moments <laughs> So I'll often, it'll often be with a little bit of a smile and it'll be, I was here first, I'm going to, and then, you know, do your thing. Other times it would be, um, in fact, I've seen a meeting only recently where somebody made a, um, an assumption about my salary, my pay grade. And I, and I, I actually mm. stopped the conversation and said, hang on, you, you've no idea, you know, where I am in the system. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go down that that road you know so um I often also get mistaken for the student or the the PhD student or um some kind of uh oh we're grateful that this sort of junior person's here with this kind of thing you know it's like a whole nother exhausting thing that you have to deal with on top of everything else in your career, I guess. Yeah, I take it with a pinch of salt. It's tiresome. It's, it is very tiresome, but it, it sadly it goes with, you know, <laughs> women that are pioneering things. And it, always, and it always has, and I just wish it didn't, and I wish it would change, but it, at the minute it hasn't done. And, and I would like to say that I have um, an incredibly supportive boss, male boss, um who is attuned to this so looking back at your career so far would you say there's like a a proudest achievement that you've come away with um I'm I'm really I don't know I really really love my job I Mm -hmm. um I'm really proud of what the team has achieved and I'm really proud of my evolving leadership um in that you know it's evolving all the time and sometimes I don't get it right but I talk to my team and I ask them you know can I can we chat through this is this working well for you if I said something in this way how would you feel you know can can you help advise me so it's very much a, a collaborative thing 
I'm very proud of what we've done at, um, in Welcome Connecting Science, you know, being the first kind of society and ethics group on campus and founding that and setting that up. I'm really, really proud of that. Um, I mean, I, I've sort of historically said my most, I feel like the most significant thing that I've personally contributed to the ethics literature is, is the work on the deaf community. So that was from my PhD and, you know, just turning everything around on its head and, um, you know, challenging what is normal um, and, you know, highlighting that some people are not positive about genetics and um, might choose to use it in ways that we never imagined. And that's completely fine. I think that's probably my biggest contribution because that as an ethical conundrum is now taught around the world as part of genetic counselling courses. And it's a very classic um, genetics and ethics discussion point now. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm very proud of that. But I mean, that's like 20 odd years ago now. So I hope that isn't the only thing that I'll contribute. <laughs> um, I guess following on from that, um, what are your next big goals or future goals for your career or personally? Oh, I'm very, very clear on that. Um, my and this I think it'll take a whole career to figure this out, but um it's how to genuinely socialize genomics for disconnected public audiences um and also to be able to measure that that has happened um and there's going to be no one sim simple single solution to that um but it's a, it's a sort of thing that's going to take a whole career to figure out and that's what's really really driving me is um how to do that how to bring the right partners to the table to to figure that out um I'm connected with, with some incredible filmmakers at the moment and was um, instrumental in bringing together a group um, of PR agency experts and advertising experts um, to coincide with the G7. So we managed to get public trust and genomics on the agenda um, for um, an incredible policy group that raised this and discussed it. And we're gonna have a series of round tables around how to actually genuinely socialize genomics with some incredible creative storytellers. Um, I think if we can nail that, then that will be, I'll retire at that point. That's my life's work. Yeah. <laughs> Very clear, that's my objective. It's <laughs> incredible. I think you're the first person we've asked that question to and they've, and you've been like, I know what it is. <laughs> I know what thing is. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else is a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. That was an amazing conversation. Oh, you're welcome. I love these. They always make me think a bit differently every single time. Yeah, I think if you can get a really lovely network of friends together that are colleagues, that'll, that's really, really positive. Yeah. Seek out those, those male or female mentors. I think that's a really good idea um yeah. and and feel that work is a joyous thing and if it isn't change it so it becomes yeah. a thing that you really enjoy yeah does this email bring me joy no go on. no delete <laughs> delete <laughs> great approach sorry your email didn't bring me joy i've deleted it joy. off you go the marie condo with the email inbox thanks so much for tuning in to the decoding life podcast this sadly was our last episode of this season, but we will be back in the autumn with more amazing guests. Make sure to subscribe here and follow us on Twitter at Decoding Life Pod and Instagram at Decoding Life Podcast to find out when we'll be back. We would like to thank the public engagement team at the Welcome Sanger Institute for their help and funding of this project. 
In particular, Alexandra Kanet Font and Dr. Elena Pants for their guidance and advice through the entire process. We would also like to thank Piv Gopalasingam for thoroughly researching our guests prior to interviews, as well as Rick Keens for our beautiful logo. Thank you.